But Psalm 14 is for us this evening. Psalm 14, you have my outline there in front of you, and, and uh, we're talking about the problem with all mankind, with all, we're, we're going to solve the world problems tonight. We're, we're, we're going to solve it. Psalm 14. Follow with me as I read it. Beginning with the title, A Psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and they do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Father, now as we quiet our hearts and humbly come under the authority of your word read and the authority of your word preached, we pray that The word would go forth with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction that we would receive the word of God, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in us who believe. By the power of your Holy Spirit, O God, work by and with your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You and I know the problem with the world. You and I know what the problem is with all people everywhere in the world. All people who have ever lived without exception. Well, except for one, the virgin-born one. All mankind, what is the problem? What is the worldwide problem? It is sin. It is the problem of sin. If you know that and you believe that, you know more than what any unbeliever knows and recognizes. They might have a lot of solutions that they might have for their problems, but they'll never get to the root of their problems. They'll never get to the root of why they are the way they are and why the world is the way it is. Sin. Sin. Sin is the most crippling and the most debilitating. It is the most destructive and the most corrupting. And sin is the most soul-destroying reality. And to be sure, it is the most God-opposing reality in all of the universe. There's an amazing little verse tucked in Leviticus chapter 26. It's the context of the curses. Leviticus 26, verse 24, here's what God says. I will strike you seven times for your sins. What does that mean? 
Well, seven is the number of completion. That's God saying to his people Israel, I am going to completely strike you because of your sin. What? Sin? Why is God so hostile toward sin and sinners? Why is God so enraged over sin? Why does God say in Isaiah 13 and 14 and Zephaniah chapter 1 that he is going to punish the world because of its sin? Psalm 14 tells us the answer. Psalm 14 is not a very long song. It's very short. It's very brief. But it's filled with theology, filled with truth, filled with very humbling, humbling doctrine. Now, David wrote Psalm 14. David wrote it, and that's really all we know about the background of the psalm. But we know that Psalm 14 is all about the wickedness of man. Psalm 15 is all about the worshiper of God. They're back to back for a reason. We're going we're gonna to go down in the depths of sin tonight as we behold the theology of it. Next week, we'll see what God does when he transforms a worshiper for his glory. This is so important that God not only has it one time in Psalm 14, he has it identically in Psalm 53. It's nearly word for word identical in Psalm 53. But not only does God have it twice, Psalm 14 and 53, it's also quoted in Romans chapter 3. So God not only says this once or twice, but three times. And we come to the doctrine of depravity. By way of introduction, I want you to go with me and journey with me into the darkness of depravity for a minute. And really, we're in the realm of anthropology. Anthropology, the doctrine of man, the study of man. When we talk about depravity, or theologians might call it total depravity, maybe a better word for that would be total inability, or moral inability, or radical corruption, It is a doctrine that teaches that fallen mankind is unable to love God, unable to obey God, unable to please God, unable to come to God. Why? Because sin has so thoroughly defiled man in every part of his being, every part of his being. Total depravity means radical corruption. That is to say, the core of our being is radically infected by sin, totally infected by sin. It permeates our hearts, our minds, our wills, our desires, and our actions. It's so bad that Romans 8 verse 7 says that the unbeliever cannot please God. The unconverted person is not able to please God at all. Because everyone is born spiritually dead, even though he or she may be physically alive. People are living and walking and breathing physically, but dead to God spiritually. Radical corruption is the doctrine that means that sin has pervaded every part of our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual makeup. So that there is nothing about us that remains untouched by our sin. That's pretty bad news. 
And we were all automatically born that way together. Not one exception. We are, we are not totally depraved because we have sinned. I hope you hear that. We're, we're not sinners because we sin. We are radically depraved. And because of that, we commit sin. So our sin nature is the root, and then our sinful deeds are the fruit. It's like a corrupt tree that brings forth corrupt fruit. So the corrupt sin in your life, it begins with a corrupt nature. In other words, one writer said, there's no island of righteousness anywhere in our lives when we are born. And I want to show you this. Go with me to Ephesians 4. This is not just some Old Testament teaching. Go to Ephesians 4. Now, here's where we are. Paul is writing to the church, and he's telling the church to live like the church and be unified in the church. But if you're going to live unified in the church, you can't live like you used to live. So follow with me, Ephesians 4, and look at verse 17. Notice what Paul says. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, he's writing to Christians, that you walk, you live no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Where does it begin? In the futility of their thoughts. Verse 18, well, what does that mean? They are darkened in their understanding and they are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Do you see that? Their understanding, their ignorance, their hardness of heart, the futility of mind. Now verse 19, they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. What's Paul saying? This is what you used to be like. Don't live like that anymore. You you used to live that way. That's your pre-conversion self. In Ephesians 4, we have the mind, the understanding, the ignorance, the hardness of heart, the ongoing pursuit of sin, the evil actions. And Paul says, no, 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 don't live that way. You used to live that way. And that brings us again to the reality of radical corruption. It is in the realm of anthropology, but when we talk about sin, theologians talk about that in hamartiology, the doctrine of sin. And back to Psalm 14, that's where we are tonight, dealing with the doctrine of sin. And what I want to bring out to you as we look at this psalm together tonight, in a very simple word, Psalm 14 teaches that man is thoroughly corrupt. And man has, hear this, Actively, he's not passive. Man has actively turned away from God. We can't blame it on others. We have actively turned away from God. So, from our passage, God is going to show us the problem with all mankind. I want to take my outline. It was George Whitfield's favorite outline. And I didn't do it because it was Whitfield's favorite outline. It comes out of the text. It just so happened to be Whitfield's favorite outline, too. Number one, I want you to see your ruin by sin. Number two, your redemption in Christ. We're going to go low in the depths of sin 
so that we can go high in gratitude and worship to Christ. I want you to see first with me your ruin by sin in verses 1 to 6. Now, we need to be crystal clear. I know it's uncomfortable, and I know people could call you a bigot, and I know they could give you every name in the book when you start talking about sin, and you point the finger and say, you and I are sinners. Sin doesn't just rub shoulders with us. Sin doesn't merely touch us. It doesn't influence us. It doesn't misguide us. Sin is who we are. It consequently affects all that mankind does. We are wholly ruined because of sin. There's not a whole lot of worship songs that are written nowadays that bring this out. So we have to go to the old hymns. Listen to what Benjamin Bedham wrote. Lord, dost thou love a worm? A worm, like me? That love, how wonderful and free to someone so vile and base. I am a wretch, forlorn, undone, unclean. I am an heir of wrath, a slave of sin, yet I'm a subject of your grace. Where are the songs written nowadays that bring that out? Or Isaac Watts in the 1700s. I am a guilty, weak, and helpless worm. Into your hands I fall. Be my strength and righteousness, my Savior and my all. Lord, I am vile, conceived in sin, and I am born unholy and unclean. Sprung from the man whose guilty fall corrupts the race and taints every one of us. Sin. We're guilty. We're corrupt. Charles Spurgeon was a 21-year-old young man. He compiled a Puritan catechism. Question 17 of Spurgeon's catechism is this. What is the misery of the state that all mankind fell into? Spurgeon said, quote, All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, And all men are under his wrath and under his curse, and they are liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and the pains of hell forever. That's the condition of all of us. Now, look with me in your outline. What I want to do is I want to show you the unspeakable ruin of sin. Now, this is not hard so much to understand, it's hard to swallow. It's humbling. It's humbling. They don't teach this in Psychology 101 in the State University School, but God does in his word. Follow with me the unspeakable ruin of sin. Number one, notice where it all begins in verse one. The fool has said where? In the heart. You need to know that. What is the heart in the Bible? It's the mission control center of your life. It's like the hard drive. When the Bible talks about your heart, it's not the beating organ. It's your thoughts. It's your cravings. It's your desires. It's what makes you, you. It's what drives what you do, how you think, how you live, how you talk. The fool has said in his heart, his thinking, his desires, his disposition, there is no God. All sin begins first in the heart. In your outline, number two, notice this. What sin believes Ha! There is no God. This, in the Hebrew, 
is like saying, no God for me. It's not that he's a bold atheist like you might find on a campus today. I don't believe in any God. That's not the idea here. This is not what some have called dogmatic atheism. This is not that. This is practical atheism. What is practical atheism? I live as if there is no God. I live as if God is lying when he says, I'll judge you on judgment day. You live as if God isn't going to judge you. The ruin of sin begins in the heart. What does sin believe? Ah, No God. I can live how I want. God's not going to judge me. He's not going to come against me. Practical atheism. Third, what does sin produce? Well, this is where the psalm just goes into detail. Look at verse 1. They are corrupt. Corrupt means defiled. And then verse 1, they have committed abominable deeds. What does that mean? They're a stench in God's nostrils. End of verse 1, there is no one who does good. Verse 2 tells us that there are none who seek after God. Verse 3 tells us that all have turned aside and they've become corrupt. Verse 3 ends, this is contrary to culture, there's no one who does good. None, not even one. How far, fourth in your outline, does sin extend? How far? Well, it it extends, verse 1, at the end, there's no one who does good. At the end of verse 2, God looks down from heaven upon all men to see if there's anyone who understands. But verse 3, notice this, they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. I mean, this is not only found in Psalm 14. This is the clear testimony of Romans chapter 3. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. One. Earlier in Romans 3 verse 9, we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. This is, this is the extent of sin. All. Every. Together. All of us. And your outline number five. Why? Why is sin so dangerous? Boys and girls here tonight, please hear this. Sin is dangerous. There's nothing safe about sin. Verse four, do all the workers of wickedness not know? They eat up my people like they eat bread and they don't call on the Lord. Why is it dangerous? Because it is a full active revolt against God. They don't call on God. They don't pray to God. They don't seek God. They actively see God and they turn the other direction. And if we're talking about the ruin by our sin, look in your outline at number six. What does sin hate? It hates God and it hates God's people. Verse four, they eat up my people 
just like they eat and consume bread. They eat up God's people. They don't call upon God. They don't want God. They don't love God's people. And then, number seven in your outline, what does sin make of people? What, what, what does sin make of people? How does verse one begin? The fool. You'll know the Hebrew word, Nabal. Remember that character in 1 Samuel 25, 25? So his name, that was his nature. He was a foolish man. This is the word Nabal. Now, the word Nabal in Hebrew, you got to get this meaning. It means this, aggressive perversity. He is aggressively perverse. The, The word is morally perverse. This is not a mentally deficient. When you say that somebody is a fool, in this term that is, When this person is a fool, you're not making an intellectual statement. Look, you and I could go to a a university and somebody could run circles around me intellectually. This is not an intellectual statement. It's a moral declaration. When, When he's saying that they're a fool, he's not saying that they're dumb. He's saying you're morally perverse. You're an aggressively perverse person. Now that's, I mean, that's brutal. That's brutal because God is not shy or bashful when he speaks honestly and clearly about the hellish nature of our sin. And you know what? Let's just clarify. We are really good at renaming and relabeling sin in our day. We've become professionals at labeling sin. But God doesn't. Isaiah 1.5, you continue in your rebellion. The Hebrew word for rebellion is apostasy. Numbers 32.23, you've sinned against the Lord and your sin's going to find you out. Isaiah 24.5, the earth is polluted because they've transgressed my laws. God says, Jeremiah 6.28, they, all of them are corrupt. Hosea 5.2, the revolters have gone deep in depravity. Acts 3.26, Peter preaches and says, turn from your wicked ways. Jesus said, Matthew 7, verse 23, on that final day, the wicked will hear, depart from me, all you who practice lawlessness. 1 John 3.4, sin is lawlessness. Jesus preached in the open square in John 8.34, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And then God very clearly preached through Isaiah, Isaiah 59 two, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So the real problem with our world is sin. So let me clarify just one more brief way. Sin is an affront to God. Sin is anti-God. Sin is actively opposed to God. And you know, sin wants to un-God God. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam. It is absolutely inescapable for every man. But sin is conquered at the cross of Christ. If you're a believer here today, 
through Jesus Christ, sin has been defeated for you, not by you, but for you through Christ. And one day you'll make it home to heaven where sin is absent. I was at Hope Clinic yesterday. I I had a different illustration and I deleted that and put this one in. A man got out of his car with his girl and I was right there on the sidewalk and I said, sir, don't murder your baby. He turned around eyeball to eyeball to me and he said, I'm going to murder my baby. I said to the young lady, she put her hood up at that point on her sweatshirt clearly wanting to hide. I offered help. I'm here to help you. There's an ultrasound van. We'll we'll do anything. Finances, diapers, counsel, Bibles. What do you need? Doctor help, adoption. The girl went inside. We preached, we called out, we preached, we warned, we gave the gospel. She goes in, he comes back out to the car. I said, God calls you to protect your baby, not murder your own baby. He didn't get in his car. He stood there and looked at me. And everything that I said, he arrogantly mocked, arrogantly mocked. He spoke foul, arrogant, self-deifying, God-abhorring phrases. Christ-debasing phrases. He was mocking the gospel replies. It was only for a couple of minutes. In every scripture that I gave, he mocked. He mocked. Finally, it was over. It was done. Don't cast your pearls before swine. He laughed. He got in the car. And he drove off. That fool said in his heart... There is no God. Now, he he may be smarter than me. That's not an intellectual statement. It is a moral statement because of his aggressive perversity. Happily going on in sin. Sin sin is is like poison. It bites and then it kills. Sin is like fire. It burns and hurts and destroys. Sin is like a disease. It spreads and kills. Sin is a murderer. It loves secrecy. It loves hiding. It loves deception. And then it stabs. Sin is like invading armies. They trick. They come in secret. They come in numbers. They come without retreat. And they want to overtake, overpower, and overrule. Sin is like the Trojan horse. They come sneakily and then invade from within. Sin is like a fake lover. Tells you she loves you, but then she leads you with herself to the depths of hell. Sin is like a flatterer, sweetly puffing you up before stabbing you in the back for the kill. Sin is like a prison. It holds you, it keeps you, it confines you until you die because you broke the law. Where do you go for hope? Where do you go? Where do we go for hope? It's so bad in verse 5 in our psalm, they are in great dread because God is with the righteous. He's not with the wicked. He's with the righteous. 
And then in verse 6, oh, the wicked would love to put the shame, the counsel of the afflicted. But I love how the Lord is the refuge for the righteous. You and I are ruined by sin. That's true. And I know I've spent almost all of the time on point one. But that's what makes us ready and eager to receive number two your redemption in Christ. This is, this is the beautiful testimony of all of scripture that man is really bad, that God is really mad, and that Jesus is the only hope. I mean, that, that's the Bible. Man is bad. God is mad. Christ is your only hope. And because we see the depths of sin rightly, it will cause us to soar to the heavenlies in praise. I mean, if you go to somebody at your workplace and say, you know what? Jesus loves you and he wants, he wants to be your savior. Okay. Why? My life is fine. But the lower that you go in sin and the darker the depravity and the hopelessness of man's inability, and then you see Christ. And his power to redeem the dead soul. The higher you will go in praise and gratitude and worship and love. It's like, who can save wretched worms from God's thunderous and furious wrath? Answer, only God. So here's the gospel. Only God can save sinners from God. Only God can save sinners from God. That's why God had to come to earth himself to die for men so that he might raise men and save them all by his power. That's verse 7. Look at the hope of verse 7. There's so much here. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Notice God initiates. Why? In the Hebrew, it's emphatic. Oh, that he might give from Zion salvation. We need God to give this. Man can't give it. You can't give it. I can't give it. Mary can't give it. Baptism can't give it. God can give it. He initiates. Second, God accomplishes salvation. I love that word in verse 7. Oh, that the salvation... The full orb deliverance, the full deliverance would come when the Lord restores his people. That's what God does. His covenant people, he restores them. And then the end of verse 7, what does God do when he restores them? They, They rejoice. The people are glad in God. There is hope. And the hope is what God does for sinners in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 tells us that even though we were dead, there was a circumcision made without hands. And yet that circumcision made without hands came through Christ and it comes through faith in him. And that's what brings salvation. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. What a great God. 
William Carey, often called the father of modern missions. In the 19th century, he was a missionary to India. If you go to his gravestone, here's what it reads. William Carey, it said this, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. He, he knew it. And whoever it was who put that there knew that William Carey believed in our human nature, in Adam. We're vile. We're worms. We're sinners. Unable to come to God. So we fall on God's kind and merciful arms. So, as we draw this to a close, I need to mention this, that God is holy and pure and perfect and just. And because he is holy, perfect, pure and just, he is infinite and, well, sin offends God. It offends God. And because God is infinite, your sin against him deserves an infinite hatred and punishment. So the question that you and I need to think and that we need to ask others and we need to call our children to consider is this, who's going to pay for your sin? Like every single one of them. I mean, who, who's going to pay? You, you, go, you go to the college campus. I'm not interested if you think you're a good person or if you believe in yourself. That doesn't matter. I want to know who's going to pay for your sin. For your sin, there's only two options, only two options. One, you will bear all of your sin in hellfire. You'll pay for it. The problem is it's forever. You'll never pay for it. The second option is that Jesus bore. Jesus bore all of your sin at Calvary as your substitute. Either way, God will be just. He will be righteous. He will be holy. And sin will be punished. Oh, there's a prideful response. Eh, there's no punishment. My God wouldn't do that. You can have your Jesus. You can have your God. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm all right. That's the foolish response of Psalm 14. But, but there's, the, there's the humble response. There, there's the wise response where somebody would say, I have no other hope but Christ. He died. He took my sin. He paid for it and said, it is finished. God is satisfied. One. The prideful response leads to a self-loving life. You live for yourself. You love yourself. The world is ultimate. You are your own God. Judgment day, it's a myth. But the other response, the humble response, believing on Christ, leads to God-oriented living. Oh, it's a, it's a life of thankfulness. It's a life of humility. It's a life of service and love to Christ. To, to live for him, what joy and delight there is, even in the trials, living for him. That's why Hebrews 10 tells us about the work of Christ and then the walk of the Christian. 
That's why Galatians 3 tells us about the redemption of Christ, and then Galatians 5 tells us about the walk of the Christian. It's why Romans 3 tells us about the depth of our sin, and then Romans 12 tells us about our duty to walk in holiness. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our sin, and then Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are to walk in good deeds. Because we were ruined, but we've been redeemed. And we who are redeemed love our Redeemer. And we want to honor Him, and we want to obey Him, and we want to serve Him. That's the condition for all mankind, ruin and sin, ruin. Maybe even here tonight, if anyone is in that condition, the only thing you can do is cry out to God for his mercy. Cry out, ask him to forgive you and change you and save you and convert you and transform you. But, but for us as Christians, What a good reminder for us to hate our sin. John Owen said it well, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Oh, let let us love the word and read the word and memorize the word and obey the word. By the spirit of God, we can put to death the deeds of the flesh and we will live, Romans 8, 13. So, praise God that we have a Redeemer. A Redeemer who can deliver us from our ruin. I close with these great words from James Smith. Sin had incensed divine justice against us. Sin had exposed us. To all of God's wrath. Sin has brought us under the dreadful curse of God's violated law. But you know what? Jesus came and Jesus took away our sins. And at the same time, he satisfied the claims of divine justice. He totally appeased the Father's wrath. And he bore our curse upon himself. What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love. We were ruined. But praise God, we've been redeemed by Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time the hard, the humbling, a study in Psalm 14, but yet, O Lord, at the same time, it is so humiliating to see the darkness of our sin. But Lord, we have nowhere to go. We stand naked before the eyes of Almighty God. We have nowhere to go but to come and be clothed in Christ. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that there is hope for our ruined world. And that hope 
is not political, it's not economic, it's not societal, it's spiritual, it's a divine work of God, it's the redemption that comes in Christ. Thank you for such glorious truth. May you receive the preeminent gratitude from our hearts that you alone are worthy to receive. In Jesus' name, amen.